You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. Hi everybody, this is Annie with Showreel, all about Australia's films and moving image, the making of them, their exhibition and the enjoyment of them. Today we're looking at some of the films to be shown at the upcoming Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. This year MDFF is online because of COVID. It starts on June the 30th and runs to July the 15th with all the details found online on their website and Facebook page. The program gives an opportunity for Australian documentaries to take centre stage and today we have two quite different approaches to the art. Katrina Channel's Leaving Allen Street documents the moving of a group of residents from institutional care into residential care into new homes in the community. These people with intellectual disabilities were children when they first came to live at Allen Street, at the time a cutting-edge facility. This film enters into the residents' lives as they take on one of the biggest adventures of their lives. I spoke to Katrina about the making of the film. We're talking about leaving Allen Street. Can you give me an idea of how this film came about? Well, leaving Allen Street started um, because we do a bit of work with disability services. So we do promotional video work for them. And we asked, we were asked to make a short film about um, the redevelopment project of the accommodation unit at Oakley Centre. And it was meant to be about a five-minute film. And once we started filming, every time we would rock up to, with our camera, like 10 other stories would pop out. So it became a much bigger project than what we originally intended. Um, but yeah, as filmmakers, I guess when you see stories pop out like that, you sort of have to follow them. And was that something that you decided to do or did the organisation also think it was a good idea? It was a collective um, project, definitely. So I guess we had the the will and the energy and they um, were very open to exploring, I guess, the old ways of um, how you did things around uh, people living with disabilities and they were very open and transparent and and wanted to show that they were wanting to move with the times and change the way things were done well the so yeah it was a collective project I mean it's really impressive in the sense of uh, showing the personalities of uh, the people involved Definitely. I think that was 
as soon as we arrived and met everybody, that was something that struck us, just how these incredible characters, um, you know, sort of, I guess, maintained their individualism and their their larger-than-life personalities despite the fact that they were institutionalised for practically their whole lives. And they were characters and, you know, they were pas- they had passions and, um, you know, relationships and some of them, some of them wanted to get married and, um, you know, I guess they, they had lived these full, as full a life as you can um, inside an institution. So I guess um, it's the characters that really made the film in the end. In a, in a way, it breaks down barriers for the audience uh, who may or may not be have a disability to understand not just the historical past but also the present of uh, people with disability and who they are. Exactly. and I, Yeah, exactly. And I think that was really important to us that we gave the characters and the talent agency so that meant adapting the way that we filmed. So instead of doing long, drawn-out interviews, sit-down interviews where you ask people questions, which is what you generally do in a documentary, we it was much more fly on the wall and we would get the, the residents' interviews um, while they were in action um, doing things and their expressions, their ideas, their stories came through while they were um, on the move or doing things, visiting the house for the first time, seeing the plans of their new brand new house for the first time. And often they would sum up, you know, a thousand words in, in just a gesture or a comment and you knew exactly how they were feeling. So I think it's just that giving them time and space to be themselves and to be comfortable with you um, and it meant a lot more sort of observational style <laughs> shooting, which was tiring at times because you just you sort of just had to roll constantly. But um, yeah, we we thought that was sort of the only way to do it, so that they could be the agents of their own story. Yeah, well, the filming itself took around three years altogether, but um, yeah, it was. I guess there were hold-ups with some of the moves and then also we wanted to film the residents after they moved in because that was a that was a big important part of the story as well that just moving people into brand new houses isn't enough that you know the staff and the systems around people living with disabilities and the way that we think about people living with disabilities has to change also so that was an important part of the story as well. Um, so I think in the end it's been about five years or so to get to this point. Yeah, wow. Did You must have had a lot of footage. Oh, my gosh, so much footage. I think hundreds of hours. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a difficult task to cut it down. But, um, yeah, I, it was definitely... We had no idea what we were getting into at the start, but we definitely have no regrets because it, I, I guess that you know people living in that way have very few opportunities to 
to tell their story. So we're really glad to do that for them. Well, it's fantastic. When you say we, uh, is it just you and who else? Oh, myself and um, producer Bridget O'Shea. We have a company called We Are Yarn and um, we make a variety of production documentary um, and we do a lot of work. We, you know, we do commercial work with not-for-profits and things like that. And we also have some VR, virtual reality projects that we're working on as well. Well, more strengths to your arm. Uh, also, just before I let you go, the um, archival footage, that must have, uh, that was really illuminating and talking to the parents who were actively involved. Really interesting. Yeah, the archive, I get a lot of um, positive feedback about um, those those moments looking back in history because I think a lot of people, especially from Melbourne where this is based, have no idea about the history of institutionalisation in Melbourne. Um, and I think it's, for myself even, it was really fascinating to look at that and to see that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people were living in the what they called the idiot ward in the queue. In queue. Um, so I think the history is really interesting and something that we should, um, you know, know about as a community. But I think, yeah, and the parents' story was interesting too because the reason they set up Oakley Centre in the first place was because um, the parents had no other support at the time. So they actually banded together to build the Oakley Centre because that was the only option that they had. Um, you know, one of the older parents talks about just sitting at home on her own with Bruce, her heavily disabled child, and, you know, she was sort of shunned from the community and that wasn't that long ago, and that's all she did. All she could do was sit at home on her own. So, um, yeah, pretty um, heartbreaking stories from not that long ago, but I guess that's, you know, the the Oakley Centre was very innovative at the time when it was built. So that is sort of a complex history as well because it wasn't always doom and gloom. Um, and then from there, it's, you know, it's evolved again. So we now we now see that institutionalising um, people with disabilities is not the right approach, but um, I guess it's all about making those small steps and progressing. So now we're looking at um, allowing people with disabilities to make choices about the way they live their life and that those, you know, that those choices are valid and real. And we need to respect that. Well, there's a lot of love in this film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we, we we felt the love, and they gave the love. So yeah, it it's a very special film, and I hope um, people take a chance on it because it's not um, your everyday doco. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for talking to me, eh? Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye bye. Throughout the month of June, 3CR is running a station appeal. We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going. 3CR relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it. 
But if you can, head to 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR Station Appeal. You're back with Annie on Showreel on 3CR, your community radio station. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival shows a range of films from around the world and this year the program has a strong showing of local films. The second film we are featuring today is Strangers to the World, a moving exploration into the state of mind and motivations of two individuals whose personal strength enabled them to forge their own path their own paths against the monstrous assault of Hitler's Germany. It is a dramatic reenactment. I spoke to the director and narrator of the film, Grant Fraser, who you might recognise as a poet of some note. It's a very compelling film and an unusual documentary in that it's a dramatic reenactment. Can you tell me about what drove you to uh, take that position? Um, I think the film screens out for dramatic reenactment. The characters are so strong and so uh, unusual that I, I thought that they, their lives would become much more meaningful and intimate if we, um, we had strong actors playing them. So that was the principal reason for doing that. And I noticed that you've got a very uh, um, high-profile actor in one of the roles, uh, Rachel Griffith. Yeah. Rachel, yes. No, Rachel's marvellous. Um, I fortunately knew, know two of her uncles who are both brilliant fellows and uh, I spoke to them initially, and they arranged for me to meet Rachel. But after that, I simply met her and showed her the script, and she was immediately interested and uh, enthusiastic, which was marvellous. And uh, we told her we didn't have any money, <laughs> which always uh, uh, I put some people off, but didn't put her off at all. I mean, she was prepared to, to do it for almost nothing. So that was just a marvellous gesture on her behalf, and a great show of faith in the film, really. Yeah, explain to uh, listeners what Strangers to the World means because it opens, the film opens with a quote regarding the whole concept of Strangers to the, yes. film, to the World. Yes, I think what it means, it's from a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I think what he had in mind was that some people, when they act in a certain way, kind of alienate themselves from the mainstream of the rest of humanity and become, in a sense, strangers. They they can't... Some people will simply not understand what they're doing and saying, and they'll have a lot of resistance from some people. And it's in that sense that I think that they become strangers. And uh, in both cases, the the two people that you're following are under incredible stress. Now, one person had a choice about how he was going to deal with... uh, Hitler's Nazism and Germany that he lived in and one she had no choice about the way she was going to deal with uh, being persecuted by the Nazis because of her Judaism do you want to talk about the two elements that you're dealing with the two choices, there are two choices in fact Eddie Hillison um, lived in um, Nazi occupied Holland and at the time all of the Jews of Holland were really under a a sentence of death, at least uh, they were to be transported to the death camps in the East. That was the sort of fate for, for all of them. And Etty was given the opportunity of going into hiding by some Dutch friends, and she said to them, no. 
And she said, I'm going with my family and my people to Auschwitz, which she did, to the death camp at Auschwitz, and sadly perished there. But uh, that's, that was her position. Um, Franz sort of could have simply done his duty, and um, as most other Austrians did, and joined the Nazi army. Uh, and there are kind of compelling reasons for, for him to do that, because he was a married man with three little kids, three little daughters, and he had all sorts of reasons not to uh, resist the Nazis, but he chose to because I think what he was informed by was a, a, a profound belief in the um, horror of the Nazi regime and the, its inherent evil, and he chose to resist that in the simplest way he could uh, with all the consequences that followed. And he went to the guillotine uh, in consequence of that. Oh, horrible. And and that's the thing. I must say that um, I watched the film and was very disturbed, of course, because it's very disturbing. I was very angry. I felt very angry yes. that they, these people were put into this position. But that's not really the reason for why you made this film, is it? No, it's not that. It's. I think I wanted to introduce people to um, something that we don't speak much about and don't think much about. That's the courage of conscience. Um, we live in a strange world which is uh, full of movement and uh, voices, but uh, not many people stand still and um, listen to them, their own heart and their conscience. And that's what um, I think they did. They were in a, a very frenzied time, uh, but they found that quiet courage to do that, and it enabled them to defy the, the Nazi overlords. And I think that those kind of decisions, um, perhaps on a smaller scale, uh, face us, we face them all, all face them at some time during our lifetimes. There's an interesting um, element in the script where it says that he decided, Franz decided, that he couldn't possibly offload his guilt to the Fuhrer. That, that idea that the Fuhrer was, t uh, I mean, it's a horrible sort of inverted version of Christ, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, it is a little bit, yes. He, um, he says that at some stage and uh, he can't, he, I mean, it was about what the, the nature and the nub of the decision he was making. And he realised that he had to make the decision entirely alone. I mean, he was, um, it's the sort of thing that you can't sort of rely on somebody else in any sense. It has to be your decision entirely. And it's a pretty rare situation to find yourself in that you have to make a decision without the comfort of having friends or colleagues or mentors give you some serious advice. And the advice that he got from his bishop was to simply go off and do his duty. And he chose to defy that. Yeah, there's, a big decision or, from his point of view. there's also a very interesting element too, say, uh, the bishop saying, you know, you're just small fry. You don't have to worry about these sorts of things. Leave it to more important people. Very classist sort of attitude to <laughs> someone's... Uh... Yeah, and uh, I think to a person of conscience, that's like a red rag. I think that um, uh, your importance doesn't matter ultimately. I mean, the only important person is you when you're making that sort of... or called upon to make that sort of decision. And uh, it's no good saying that... Uh, far more important people 
uh, going to make the decision for and on your behalf. <laughs> yeah, it's so stupid. I mean, it was profoundly stupid. Uh, 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 tell me about the script writing because it's very dense, it's uh, very well researched, and it's beautifully knitted together. So tell me about it. Well, thank you for those compliments. I, uh, it's, um, I am sort of by background a lawyer as well as a poet, so words are very important to me. And uh, I, in writing the script, I was conscious of the language. In fact, most of the dialogue in the film comes directly from both of the characters, um, the diaries of uh, Etty and the letters of Etty and the letters of Franz and some reflections that he wrote. Most of the dialogue is, dialogue is taken from that and just knitted together and edited a bit. So it's not uh, the dialogue itself is largely original from the source. So what about the um, filmmaking itself? How did you manage to... Why did you decide you were going to make a film? Well, I'd always been in, interested in film and uh, uh, I thought that I'd never make one. But I made a couple of little smaller films, one called... Uh, uh, syllable to Sound, which was eventually shown on ABC television about poets of the 20th century, and a shorter film about Rembrandt, Rembrandt Van Rijn. So, oh, I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. Someone's ringing. I have to do it. I'll just I'll dispose of this other phone. Yeah, yeah, that's mind. fine. Yeah, you do that. Okay. Thanks. I've done that now. <laughs> and uh, Put it to death. Where were we? <laughs> Sorry? Oh, oh so uh, we were talking about the other films that you'd made, and you made a film about Rembrandt. We, well, these are all very interesting, because I find Rembrandt absolutely fascinating. Yes, yeah, so I'd written a lo quite a long poem about Rembrandt, and um, I made a film with Ellery Ryan, who's the cinematographer on this film, um, based on the poem, which is just me reading the poem, with lots of... Um, pictures of uh, different Rembrandt paintings as they sort of arise in the, uh, in the poem. So that was, uh, that was an interesting exercise. And it's interesting about Ellery. Ellery and I, uh, in fact, did first-year law together back in the 1960s at Melbourne University. Ellery posted uh, <laughs> in after that and went off to do something serious. <laughs> he went off and became a filmmaker. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Well, having uh, having okay, a lot so to do, having a lot to do with radio, I'll have to say that um, doing a delivery uh, as a uh, script read, did you find that a challenge? Uh, yes, I hadn't done anything for ages and ages, and just trying to remember lines and so on is, is enormously difficult uh, for me. But uh, hopefully, it'll come back a little bit. <laughs> I'm trying to do some podcasts of my poems. Um, uh, at the moment, and uh, finding that a bit difficult because I, I haven't done anything like this for so long. So, um, being surrounded by marvellous actors, that was a great inspiration to me. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, ha has the film been anywhere else, or is this its first outing? We, in fact, the Austrian and Dutch ambassadors approached us directly and said, "Look, we would like to screen the film in Canberra for an invited audience." which they did back, I think, about 12 months ago we did that. And that was very well received because most of the audience were, in fact, Dutch or Austrian people who had lived during the um, Nazi occupation. And many of them came up to me after and said, look, this was something that we have tried to forget for years. 
but thank you for reminding us. <laughs> uh, so it was, I think one of the, the virtues of film and poetry is that it does kind of confine things, builds a little wall about them so that we can, uh, they become something that, that, are, that are at arm's length and we can appraise them much more truly. That's it for Showreel this week. Next week we'll feature some more films from MDFF, all Australian, all fascinating. Until then, keep safe, take care of yourself, and you'll hear from me next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.